Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast, In the Barrel with Cap and Mac. I'm John McMahon, here with my good friend and colleague, the infamous John Kaplan. Cap, how are you? Johnny Mac, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Doing great. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Looking forward to today, man. Hey, Cap, our next guest is is like one of those rare, multi-talented people. You know, the type of person that can do anything he puts his mind to achieving. So I met Mark when he was CRO during the very early days of HubSpot, when HubSpot was pre-IPO. And he was responsible for both sales and services at HubSpot. And during his time at HubSpot, he increased revenue over 6,000%, expanded the team from one to 450. And as a result, HubSpot at the time placed 33 on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in 2011. And then during Mark's time at HubSpot, he also authored the award-winning book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, using data, technology, and inbound selling to go from zero to $100 million in sales. So today, Mark, I said he's multi-talented. He holds two roles. First, he is a professor in the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at the Harvard Business School, where he teaches entrepreneurial sales and marketing to the second-year MBA students. And second, he's co-founder and managing director at the VC firm Stage 2 Capital. Mark also holds a BS in mechanical engineering from Lehigh and an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. Hey, Cap, help me welcome my good friend, the super talented Mark Roberge. Mark, it's good to see you, brother. It's good to see you. Thanks for being oh with us. Oh, my up. gosh. I should just record that and bring it with me everywhere I go. Thanks, you should, John. buddy. On that, those days when uh, you're feeling down. You make me hard to be far humble, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Great to, yeah, be, great to be here with you guys. Thank you. It's all true, though, right? I right. guess so. You're right. You're right. I didn't exaggerate. You're a lot with your help. A lot with your help. So thanks. I'm, I'm excited to dive in here and um, and share some of the stories. So, Mark, we get a lot of questions from a lot of the sales leaders that listen about, you know, what's it like to you know be a CRO for the first time? And we also have a lot of people that just became CRO um, that have questions about, you know, being the CRO. Can we start by talking a little bit about you being the first CRO at HubSpot? You know, what were the mm-hmm. biggest challenges that you faced, you know, in a pure raw startup, zero dollars in sales, mm. and you mm. had to get it going? Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. So the CRO title is kind of a joke when you have four employees. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, <laughs> you have to kind of, you know, titles don't tell me much when I'm talking to other folks. I'm just like, hey, back it up for a second. How many employees do we have? How many salespeople do you have? Do you even have frontline managers? If you have frontline managers, do you have a do you have a sales director layer that manages the managers? And I think that kind of tone sets the stage for like, 
what that looks like. Because, you know, when I went in there, we literally had four employees. It was Halligan, Darmesh, and Mike Volpe. Volpe kind of doing marketing, Darmesh like, you know, doing some coding and, and Brian kind of running the show. And, um, you know, so of course I was salesperson. You know what I mean? Yeah, my title was VP of sales, but I was salesperson. And I, my Brian and I closed the first hundred accounts. And, you know, that's, um, I would say at that stage, and I've kind of written a lot about that and taught a lot, a lot about that. That first sales hire is so different than your 10th one, right? It's like the 10th one, like you show up and you're like, okay, where's the playbook? What's the comp plan? Where's my named accounts? What's the ICP? Let me go make some money. That doesn't exist on salesperson number one, right? Like you're almost like product manager plus salesperson. Like this is usually when they bring that first salesperson in, it's like, this is the first moment that the company is going to go from like maybe five customer conversations a week to like 30. And so that's such a big opportunity for learning. And, and, and you're, you're, you're trying to bring in those, those first deals in a really scrappy way. I personally don't think like pricing matters a lot right there. Um, I think you're just trying to get people in and, and create success stories and you're trying to get good market learnings back to the product team. And so, yeah, I got up to like, a hundred customers. And then Brian's like, okay, great. Like this thing works. We feel like we have product market fit. Your new task is hire one salesperson a month. So now you're like, now you're like sales manager. Right. And so, and I kind of looked at that moment and I kind of like, that's kind of step two, right? Step one is just the selling. And like, I actually set up the sell the the CRM dashboards, even when I was the only seller, John, because I knew if I succeed, I want to set that tone for the, for the culture. And I had such a unique situation where most sales leaders come in and try to like instrument things and the, the old culture and the old guard is a little resistant. I was the only old guard and I was just doing this. So when the new salespeople came in, they were like, oh yeah, this is just how it works. I mean, Robert did it from the beginning. And so now all of a sudden you're sales manager and it's all about like hiring people, onboarding people, coaching people and getting them to their number. And then there's an aspect of demand gen as well. And so as I looked at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to hire one rep a month. And I had like, a, I had a picture of like what an A plus job would be for hiring, what an A plus job would be for onboarding and what an A plus job would be for managing. And I was like, that all adds up to like 150 hour work week. I can't do it. So I'm like, where am I going to do an A plus? I can work 80 hours. Okay. So like, where am I going to do an A plus job? And where am I going to try to get by on a B minus? And when I thought about it, I'm like, I have to do an A plus job on hiring and I'll do a B minus on the other two. Because like, if I, you know, if I do a B minus job on hiring and an A plus job on onboarding and managing, I'm still dealing with B players. But if I do an A plus job on hiring and get A players in, even though the systems aren't perfect in the process, A plus players are going to find a way to win. So that was like a really important moment for me of like, and, and I think for folks who maybe get up to that layer. It's like, you know, you, I, I spent maybe like a third to half my time on recruiting and interviewing. That's how you have to like be thinking as opposed to like those first time managers, are like they're probably more spending more of their time, like in sales calls. Yes. That's, that's the other folks jobs. And then, so I don't know, I'll stop there, John. And I, obviously we can, we no. can get up to like the, the, the short story after that is like, you, you almost, if you're going to grow that fast, you have to have like career ADHD. Like you have to get bored of your job in nine months because it's different in nine months. The first nine months, you're seller. The next nine months, you're sales manager. The next nine months, you're sales director, teaching sales managers how to be managers. The next nine months, you're you're finally a true VP of sales who has directors that's running the system. And then we get a really complex like CRO stuff where you start taking over 
uh, you know, customer success and even marketing potentially. You know, we can talk, we can go in whichever direction you like. Yeah, I want to go into that, but I want to go back. Like, how did you come to that realization that recruiting was the most important at that time? Because so many people just fall into the trap of, like yeah. you said, just going and making sales calls, which is what you you need to do. But ha- but they later on and sometimes never come to the conclusion that if I don't get a players, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The rest of it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how did I come up with it. I, I think I'm like I'm like one of the weird things about me, sometimes annoying things and sometimes good depending on the situation is I'm a big planner and not, not necessarily like I have to spend all my time planning, but I need to have a really good visual of what's coming in the next month, two, three, four months. And that becomes super important the higher up you go. And that, that, I think that's probably where it came out here. John was like, okay, Halligan was like, okay, this thing's working now. Now hire one rep a month. Like I had to feel like what the next six to nine months would look like. I had to picture like having those six to nine people and like, what are all the things that I needed? And that's where it came out of. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't do all this. This is, and and Halligan knew it. He's like, I'm challenging you. Like, because you're first time VP of sales and honestly, the board doesn't think you're good enough. Mm. So it's like, so it's like, it's your game to win or lose. The odds are against you. And so I'm like, okay. And not in a bad way. It's just for real, right? That's how That's you have to do true. it. Right. And it's like, and and I was like, okay, well, this is going to take some serious like finesse and architecture here. And it got me reflecting on on those aspects. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I just like it, but it, it's not what a lot of people think. And even when I start off the sales acceleration form of the book, I purposely put the hiring section first because I wanted that to be, you know, a lot of people don't get past chapter one or two. And if they're only going to read the first two chapters, I wanted them to read about that because that was kind of the most important thing. Yeah. And then you had to go hire a leader. I'm sorry, Cap. One more thing on recruiting. You had to go get some leaders now. So that had to change the profile of what you were looking for and had to be more challenging. To find the sales hire, the managers. the sales leaders now. Yeah. And that was like a good thing and a mistake too. Because like, uh, let's see, I think I promoted... Uh, over 20 managers um, during my tenure. Um, so I, d- I had a decent amount of like pattern recognition and experience and what that looked like. All but one came from inside, mm. good and bad, good and bad, right? I think it's like, it was good in the sense that like, I had a pretty good success rate, I think with my managers. You know, if we just look at like manager quota attainment, it was very high. I would say it was like 90 plus percent. So I didn't have a lot of any folks who were like struggling to build that team, et cetera. And it's because like, you know, I built like this regimented process. I think the mistake there that people make is they promote their best rep to manager. They just feel pressure. And the, and you both know like that's like kindergarten level, but a lot of people don't know that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of rigorous research to show that's bad. And it's like, well, how do you, how do you like have a team of 10 people and this one person's killing it and they're number one and they want to be manager. And how do you tell them no and promote the number three person? Right. And it's like, well, because the job of salesperson and manager is so different. Like salesperson's going out, you know, doing great discovery, moving people through a process, being good with your time. Sales management's all about like picking people and empathy and understanding and connecting and coaching and discipline. Like it's a very different job. And so I put together a process of like, oh, you want to be a manager and you want to be a manager and you want to be a manager. Okay, here's the process. Step number one, hit your quota six months in a row, right? Because like I'm not promoting my best rep to manager. 
But I also, if you don't hit your quota, you're not going to have any credibility. All you have to be, I don't care if you're 180% or 100%, you have to be above 100% to be qualified. Okay. So hit your quota for six months. You do that. You're going into leadership school. I, our architect did like a 12-week course with 12 different readings on like managing conflict, building team spirit, uh, effective, giving negative feedback effectively, like basic stuff that I grabbed out of like Harvard Business Review for five bucks an ebook. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just had them read it and I did role plays with them. It didn't take much time and I was spending time with my best people. So you go through the 12 weeks. Then the next, the final step is you hire a rep. You keep your quota, you keep your individual quota, you hire one rep and you coach them for three months. Okay. I'm not trying, I hate the team lead thing. I think you guys do too. I hate the like, oh, you have three reps and a quota for like two years. No, I hate that. Too much conflict. Um, it's too, you know, it's like they choose yourself and not your team. Right. But this is just a temporary three month thing. You carry your quota and you manage just one rep. And by the way, like when you have an eight person team, how much time do you have to spend with one rep anyway a week? Four hours? That's all I'm asking you to do. Right. So, so then by the time they go through that, it's like, first off, two thirds of them drop out of the process at some point, right? They self-select out. I didn't know this was the job. And then by the time they get into it, it's like, okay, I've worked with this person for multiple years. I put them this, through this long process. I saw them actually do the job for three months. So that worked really well. The downside is I never hired anyone from the outside. Mm. And I never, we never learned to do that. That was chained by my, pre- my successor. He did a great job with it. And, and the bad thing I'm not doing that is one, if I didn't have anyone in the pipeline and we needed to grow, that was a, a scale blocker for me. And I joined your big disciple that, you know, thought leader on that. That was a scale blocker for me. So I needed that. And number two, it's not bad to bring in some outside knowledge every once in a while. Yeah. You know, if we had grabbed like a manager from some of the other big unicorns, I think that would have been good for our culture. So you know, when I advise companies today, I kind of, I kind of advise like maybe two thirds of your frontline managers are promoted from within, maybe one third are hired from the outside. Yeah, Cap, you want to ask stay on? Uh, yeah, let's stay on this um, people aspect, Mark. I think that you just do such a great job articulating, especially for for hiring at scale. I, I've heard you talk about engineering. I don't know if these are the exact words, but engineering the sales profile. Could you Mm. kind of talk to us about how you came to that? And then, you know, (laughs) you had some characteristics, you wound up on coachability. Could you kind of walk us through how you, Mm. how you kind of came to that? Yeah, I think it was my eighth hire in that first year. There was uh, a salesperson I'd been courting for a little bit. um, And they were the number one salesperson from, a company that probably had 800 salespeople, probably 5,000 employees, and they were public, right? So you can picture this this company, and I thought it was pretty impressive. Like number one for multiple years out of an 800 person team, that's like pretty good. That's really good, right? And they were actually kind of bored and wanted to find the next big thing, and and they decided to come over. And I was just, I was like, uh, got a little nervous to be honest with you, of like you know managing this person, and and but also excited to see what that type of like um, performance look like. And I was shocked that six months later, they weren't number one on our small eight person team. And I re- that's when I realized that there is no universal top sales hire profile, but it's very contextual to your go-to-market context because they were, they were coming from a company that was 15 years old, a value prop that was extremely well understood within 
30 seconds, you knew that what they were selling just by mentioning the company because the company was running like Super Bowl ads. And like, so you can imagine like, like the type of person that succeeds there <laughs> compared to like what we had, which was like, you know, 20 people in a garage across from MIT hawking like HubSpot, which no one knew what it was, hawking inbound marketing software, which no one knew what inbound marketing was. I mean, it's just a completely different sell. And so I kind of break down context for my students is what are you selling to who? And what are the context of your company, like stage and culture and that kind of stuff? And are you in Japan or are you in North America? Because that matters, right? So it's those three pillars that define context. And and that defines everything from your hiring profile to your sales playbook to your demand gen choices to you know a lot of that stuff is contextual and so hiring is one of those and when i realized that i can't just copy what john had done at ptc for his top sales hires and i had to like almost engineer like you said cap my hiring scorecard my you know my formula and so what I did was I sat back and I like, the first thing I did, and I, I do this with all our companies, it's a very useful, they really appreciate the exercise is, okay, like, let's look at these, even if we have, let's just say five salespeople. Okay. So, so Susan's your number one salesperson. Why is she number one? What makes her great? And then Bob got fired. Why did Bob get fired? Right. What did he struggle with? And as we go through this exercise, what comes out of that are the attributes that are correlated with success, just in a qualitative nature. Okay. And so now that can be translated into a basic scorecard where we list these five to 10 attributes, coachability, intelligence, curiosity. I know John likes curiosity, right. um, you know, like work ethic. Right. And then we don't just want to limit to those two words. Like let's define, like if we're talking about work ethic, what do we mean by that? When we talk about curiosity, can you define that for me? So let's define that. And now let's take the time to define what, when we meet candidates, what is high, a high score going to look like for curiosity? What is a medium score going to look like? And what is a low score? So we have this rubric, right? And now like, I, you know, what does that take me? Like three hours to build? You know what I mean? And now I'm, I'm using that and I'm filling that out for all my future hires. Now, all of a sudden I wake up one day with 20 salespeople and now I can like get one of my buddies, my PhD buddies at MIT to, do, to run a statistical regression analysis of these scores they've been putting down with performance to see which attributes are scoring. Now that's when you get into like the major leagues, right? But just like, just having the one baby step that is few people do. And I think is one of the most important things if we say, if we argue that hiring is most important is to have the discipline every quarter to sit down and look back on your people that you hired six months ago so that you now know, are they doing well or not? And, and reflect on why and what those attributes are and iterate on your scorecard and have the discipline to use your scorecard in your hiring process. Few people do that. There's, tr there's tremendous rigorous research at the academic and practitioner level that shows that that's such an ingredient of success. What I love about what you're saying also though, Mark, is that you committed it not just to the attribute, but the definition of the attribute means what does it look like in practice in our environment? And then you measured it. And I heard you speak about coachability. Mm -hmm. And and so I find a lot of companies say, okay, let's interview for coachability. But you turned it into like a role play in the yes. interview. Could you kind yes. of yeah. walk us through the importance of not only naming the attribute, describing the attribute, 
all the way down to how do you get it into the interview process? And I think the coachability one was a great example because when I ask people, okay, what does coachability mean? They give me a definition. I say, okay, how do you verify it in the interview mm-hmm. process? Yeah. And not many, very many people have the ability to do it in the interview. I've Yeah, it's a good point, Cap. And I've, I've rarely seen a sales environment where coachability isn't going to be in your top 10. Um, maybe, maybe if you're like, maybe if you're selling some old school thing into like government and you just need to hire someone who's been in that for 20 years and just let them go do their job, maybe, maybe that's something, but like, I guess in a lot of the world I live in and like B2B, like high growth software, that coachability is so important. It was one that believe it or not, for the first two years, wasn't even in my rubric. Um, it, it took that reflection process where I'm like, wow, these three people got fired this year. And they checked all the boxes we're looking for. And it was the only commonality to them was like, hey, listen, Roberge, you know, I've been selling for 10 years. Thanks a lot for the onboarding program and the training, but I'm good. I'll be over in my office selling. <laughs> and it's just like, that was like the key ingredient to like, oh, so there's this coachability factor. And and so then the question to, you, to your point, Cap, like once you have this scorecard, you then have to like architect your interview process. Like yeah. what, what are the stages and what are the questions we're going to do? And so now we got coachability. And so, yes, I do a role play on that where um, that's, I think I've rarely seen a sales interview context where you're not, you shouldn't be doing a role play. Role plays, I think are, are critical. Multiple role plays at the phone screen time, at the in-person time, like, through, you know, do a take home one, whatever. And so um, I'll just say, okay, you know, we're going to do a role play. I'm going to be um, a marketing person for a small business and you're going to be a salesperson at HubSpot. And I just downloaded the ebook for inbound marketing and, and you're calling me. Um, so take your time, you know, like this isn't like a flat, you know, think on your feet type thing, take, take whatever time you need and then let's go. And so I'll do it. And obviously I see if they come in with a show up and throw up model where they spend five minutes blabbering the stuff I could have read on the website, as opposed to being good discovery, open questions and curiosity, like, like John likes to see. And then, um, I'll often like throw some curveball technical questions to see if they read up at all on SEO and how it works and where they're at there and get them, get them a little nervous to see how they deal when they're uncomfortable. Um, and then, you know, we'll end the role play at five minutes. Then I'll say, okay, how did you do? Cause I want to see how they self-assess. I've seen their self-assessment approach correlate with their core coachability. And if they're like, you know, I, you know, if they're nicely analyzed, if they're like, I did awesome, I'm not psyched about that. Like, no, none of us, not all three of us would do a role play on John, you do a role play on PTC and you wouldn't feel as a plus. We can always improve it. You know what I mean? Like, um, so, so like, I don't like it when they're just like, not reflective on it versus if they're like, yeah, I did. I like how I did this and I could have improved here. And I can say, tell me more about that. That's a good start. Then what I say to them is, okay, in every interview, I give one positive feedback and one needs for improvement. I, I want to do that because of course I want to jump into the criticism, but if I jump into the criticism, I feel like they might think they're bombing the interview and they might have a panic attack and then I won't be able to see the real them. So I want to explain to them that in every interview, I give one positive feedback and one need for improvement. So don't worry, you're doing great. I want to see the real them. So I give a positive and then do a need for improvement. Usually it's around the depth of their um, need, you know, discover pain discovery. And I do a little coaching and then I can see, are they glassy eyed? Are they actually paying attention and taking notes? And then I can have them redo the role play. And like, you know, a lot of them bomb it then, or we could have them like come back. If they're going to come back for the next round, they can redo it then. 
right? So there's this learning process through there. Um, but it's really the 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 um, the attempt at it that you know that that matters. And I did have one person. I remember Danny Hertzberg was like the best at it when she was interviewing for us. She had no sales experience. She had been coming out of like a private equity shop or something down in Pennsylvania because she went to Penn and she was interviewing for a chief of staff or executive assistant role at Google and uh, either a customer success or account executive role at HubSpot. And I think Joan and I were fighting over her because we saw so much potential and she crushed that. And sure enough, she came in, no sales experience, top rep, then top manager. Um, she was a star for us. She went off to, Slack, off to Slack and was like the number two or three performer at Slack, went to Stanford for MBA, and now she's a partner at Sequoia. I mean, it's like, and it was like, it all came down to that like one role play where she, she was so coachable. It's like, gosh, if you, can, if you can move the needle in five minutes with this person, what is it going to be like when we spend a month coaching them? You know, so I think I think that's a very important aspect of it. The other aspect that. that I wanted to be explicit about that you pointed out was that your scorecard or recruiting scorecard needs to evolve as your company evolves because your product changes, competition changes, customers change, market changes. And if you're not so your sales process changes. So you have to constantly evolve that scorecard. It can't stay static. Totally, John. It's yeah. a great call out. I mean, it's it's I mean, imagine that that fifth hire at HubSpot, again, who's HubSpot? What's inbound marketing? We have 20 people in our company and barely any furniture, like culturally, right? Like they're evangelizing and they need to be scrappy and tolerant of a small business. Take HubSpot today. I don't know what, 7,000 employees, right? Like public, like you don't have to be like, call anyone up and be like, Hey, I'm calling from HubSpot. And they're like, what's HubSpot? Like they know, they know what's coming, you know? but very different person. The fifth hire would have, you know, not liked HubSpot today. And the person that goes to HubSpot today may probably wouldn't have succeeded in HubSpot in 2007. You know what I mean? So all those things absolutely change. I call it scrounging. When you're in that (laughs) environment, that startup environment, you have to learn to scrounge for yourself, for the resources that you need. I love that. you come out of the bigger companies, you typically don't have to scrounge. You have name recognition, you know who you're selling to in the companies. There's probably already a budget for your product. And, you know, you're just trying to increase the, pro- the the budget versus going in and trying to displace something or sell something that someone's never bought before. It's a big difference. I love that. Hey, Johnny, I love um, <clears throat> Mark. I'm sorry I'm hanging on this people aspect, but I just think you do such a great job articulating uh, from a scale perspective. We also know we talked about hiring. Let's talk a little bit about retention because it's a big issue today. Your people, you know, your team, your roster is mm. at risk always. Mm. You've got good people and you've coached them and you've developed them. A lot of people just play off that and poach them. You came up with a really cool idea about career pathing mm-hmm. and tiering career paths. Yes. I actually, I think that's a brilliant idea. I don't hear a lot of people talk about that. I know. And I think our listeners <laughs> would just love it. Could you talk a little bit about that? I need to evangelize it more because you're, you're, you're right, Cap. It's like, you know, I always, I, you know, I'm, I like you guys, like I've dedicated my professional life to the betterment of the field, you know, in the practice and mine's a combination of entrepreneurship and sales. And, and I love to see the things that matter and make a difference. And this is one of those that I just haven't evangelized enough because it makes such a big impact. And so the, the origination here was, 
I had already kind of walked you all through my sales leadership development path, right? And so this came out of the people, the two thirds of the folks that went through it and was like, I don't want to do the sales leadership. And then they're like, well, how do I grow? I always thought like to grow in sales, I need to become a manager. And I was like, no, there's people who just like love to be individual contributors. And believe me, as the leader of this team, I want you to be stay as an individual contributor and continue to grow. Like, well, and they'd be like, kind of like, well, what do I, what do I do? Like, we don't have like that salesforce.com or Oracle path where, you know, you start as a BDR and then you start to sell to small accounts and you start to medium accounts. And 10 years later, you're selling to huge strategic accounts, making a million dollars a year. We don't have that upspot. So do I need to just quit and go there to grow? And I was like, gosh, I hope not. And so they're like, I'm really happy here. I like the culture, but I want to feel like I'm progressing. And so what I came up with was a path for growth um, as an individual contributor. And again, we didn't have a lot. Yeah, over time, we created multiple levels and partner programs. So there were different like functional differences. But I wanted a, a career path. Even if you just stayed kind of doing the same job, how can you feel like you're growing? And so um, I came up with... And the other thing that really kind of I thought required some innovation cap was... I saw how people did like annual annual salary adjustments at yeah. companies where it's like, okay, we have this 3% bucket and then you either get one or two, three, four, five, whatever. Yeah. And it just seemed like uh, we just kind of assign it to you. And I think that works fine in other disciplines. But one of the cool things about sales is like, it's so, you can be so precise on how you're doing. Like you're the best salesperson by 7.2%. You can't say that in engineering. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't be like, oh, right. that, that right. right there is our best salesperson. That's our best engineer by 7.2%. But in sales, you can do that. And so why would we have a annual qualitative subjective raise on a function that is so precise in terms of success and failure? And so those were the two originations for this. And I came up with a model that is, okay, you come in, you're, you're a tier one rep, and that means you make whatever, we'll simplify it, 50K base, 50K commission, and this is your quota, and you get 1,000 stock options. And so for you to progress, you know, the next goal is tier two. And to get to tier two, you need to acquire, let's say, you know, um, $600,000 of ARR of install base. Uh, you need to average. 50,000 ARR, which is the monthly quota for three months in a row. So not only are you getting there, but you're getting there with like performance. And then for us, this is the cool thing. You can kind of throw in a little thing, like a comp plan, that, uh, an attribute that like is very um, aligned with your unique strategy. And at that time, we were trying to get more annual contracts. So I put in uh, the, we gave them, uh, we didn't want to have force them to do everything annual. We wanted them to like, allow them to negotiate with that plumber that just has like tough cash flow, but to know it's like going to, they can't do it every time. Um, so we just said, you know, your average contract length on your deals in the last three months needs to be nine plus months. So you, maybe you sign up 10 at 12 months and maybe five at like monthly or so, you know, two at monthly. Right. So that allowed us to like align that, that approach with our top strategy of getting more contracts at the time. And so once they hit those, they get promoted to tier two and they get more options and they get a, a fancier title. 
and they get their their variable compensation goes up. Mm-hmm. So their variable comp might go from 50 to 60. And then there's an then tier three target is, you know, now you're at like 1.2 million in ARR that you have to have under your belt. And your your monthly performance has to be a little higher, say like 55, uh, sorry, 55,000 or 60,000 a month as opposed to 50,000. That's not your quota. Your quota is the same. It's just for you to get promoted, you need to be performing at a higher level. Yeah. So this did a lot of things. Okay. Uh, number one, I was able to keep my people on average for like seven years, whereas the industry average was too. Unbelievable. Right? So that like, that was like, they were just loving it. They were just going through and, and I was paying myself my my top people above market rates in a very politically okay way. Cause they deserved it. You know, th- these numbers aren't going to make sense today because the, there's the salaries are inflated, but I think at the time, like the average inside sales rep in Boston was making 110 OTE. My top folks who had made it tier five, tier six were like, Making 160, 170, but it was great. They were they were at 150 percent of goal every month. They never came to the office. They did, required no management work. The only time they came in was for cultural advent, you know, uh, contributions, which were fantastic, and mentorship. And every once in a while, they poked their poked their head up and looked for another inside sales job that was paying them 120. And they're like, you know, I'm actually pretty happy where I am. And so, like, there was just this natural way, very non political way for people to grow. And notice that in all my criteria, I never said a time aspect. You didn't have to be there for yes. a year. Yes. Right. It's like, now you couldn't get it in a month, right? Like the fact that I had the ARR install base, like if God, if you made it in a month and sold 600,000 AR in a month, good for you. You deserved it. But like, there was no way to get that. But some people got there in seven months and some people took 18 months. Right. So yeah, it was really great for retention and really get great for eliminating politics in, in the compensation conversation and the human condition is built to if you're not growing you're dying and so when you put in what i love about the strategy is not that much changed but you put in incremental small targets smaller targets than the versus these big leaps for these people i just think it mentally just keeps people goal-oriented Okay, what's the next thing? Yes. And I think it's so simple to implement, but I so many companies screw yeah. this up. They do a great job of training up their people and then they lose their people like chicklets out the door because people just poach them and they have no way of keeping them. There's yeah. no loyalty. So and it's great I've, cap too for like the SDRs, it's even better. And and the for the the way I designed the account executive one, like on average, I set the average promotion to be around a year. So it's like, as I put those performance metrics in, it's like, if they just hit their quota exactly, they'd be promoted in a year. For the SDRs, it's about three months. So there's, I, I think like six tiers that are on average three months each. And it's things like, okay, you come in, you you go through training, make a couple calls and get certified and and score a certain level on a test. And then, and then you go to tier two. And tier two is, and it goes from like, from quantitative volume up to quality as you progress. So the first tier two is like, okay, now you got to average, you know, 60 calls a day and two appointments a day. And you got to do that for like this, you know, this many weeks in a row and and accumulate and maybe get your first sale. Then you get to tier three, tier three. Now you get to have inbound leads. Okay. And then, and then you get to tier four, tier four, you get to go to account executive school. Right. So they're not always compensation oriented. And yeah. when you get to tier four, it switches from the, the 60 calls a day to 
your appointment to close ratio. So it's a little more quality focus because now you've already trained them on the activity. Now you just got to focus them in on the quality. So th- these are there's different d- dimensions, but this this strategy is highly applicable to the SDR and BDR programs too. Yeah, love it. Hey, Mark, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Talk about a movie that played out at HubSpot that plays out in most subscription companies that I know of. So there was a point where, you know, Halligan was always myopically focused on churn. And yes. sales was saying, we're selling good deals, but those guys over in services, you know, they can't support our mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. And then the services were, people were telling Halligan, you know, we know how to support customers. Those guys over in sales, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're selling bad deals. Mm-hmm. So Halligan made the smart move and gave you sales and services. Right. So now there was a new learning that Mark Robash had to go through. Yes. Not only do I have to go, you know, sell these customers, but I have to figure out a way to manage services and make sure that my sales guys, in addition, are also, you know, getting the renewals and doing the upsells. Can you Talk a little bit about yeah. you know, inheriting services and some of the yeah issues. that's still yeah that's still a shocking learning for our our new CEOs and founders and subscription businesses yes, for sure is that first off like if we unfold like retentions you're probably your biggest number even more than top line revenue growth okay that's learning number one a lot of them are there number two the root of retention issues is in sales. Like it's not in product, usually, sometimes in product, whatever, but most of the time the root is in sales. And number three, the best way to fix it is through compensation. It's crazy. Like they, 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 it's crazy for them to, to kind of walk that through. And I'll tell you the, the aha moment, and we were very data-driven at UpSpot. I think we had this saying, in God we trust, all else bring data, right? So we like, you know, we always like, we're very um, trying to look at the facts and just do this analysis if you're wondering in your company. We took, I think at the time, 50, our 15 reps and we analyzed them by the churn of their customers. And if there's a big variation, then your churn problem is probably rooted in your sales team. Um, because I think we had pretty bad churn at the time. It could have been 8% a month. <laughs> right. I remember Halligan, he would shut the company down basically and pull you all into a room and say, yeah. we're not leaving the room until we figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, 8% a month, your customers are gone, all of them in a year. I mean, that's bad. Yeah. Um, but it was like kind of around 4 or 5% a month, which is just really bad. Like that's where month after month it was. And yeah, sure enough, like when we did the analysis by salesperson, our top salesperson by churn was 0.7% a month. So there you go. If we had salespeople just like them, we'd be within the 10% annual churn number that you want. What was the difference between the top? The top person. Yeah. The top person. Yeah. The worst person was like 20% a month. And it was just like a combination of who they were selling, the expectations they were setting. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what, that's what always happens. It was like, Oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's just kind of like, I mean, in, in reality, you remember what we were selling there. We were basically selling people like if you blog and do social media for six months, your leads will go up. And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of expectation setting. And some of these bad churn sellers were just like, don't worry, just sign up to the program and you'll be number one in SEO for these words. It's like, like <laughs> magic's going to happen. You know, it's like, so, so the best way to fix that was the comp plan. And I did something that I, I, in it worked really well. I don't think I'd recommend other people do it, but I basically stack ranked the team 
by um, by their churn performance. Like here's the top quartile of churn cost in, of your churn performance. Here's the second quartile, here's the third and the fourth. And I essentially doubled the variable compensation for the top quartile and I cut the bottom quartile in half. And I mean, it, it the churn went down by like 70% in six months. If I remember you know, so though, you also paid them obviously on new business, which was new mm-hmm. sales plus upsells minus the churn. And the same, and then yep. you went over to exactly. sales and said, I'm doing the same thing for you. So you, I want both teams to play together. Yes. So in services, you're going to get, you, you set a target of churn. Yes. You said, I'm going to pay you above that. And you're going to make less below this churn yep. percentage. Exactly. We aligned the comp on that. We had clawbacks in there and the yeah. account managers and the CSMs were, the account managers had sort of an install base and we had our target retention and expansion on that. And they were paid on that. Um, I would say like the industry does an okay job on that with clawbacks, et cetera, but it's like, they don't do a good job with really thinking about embedding retention more deeply into their comp plan. The one that I like to do today that I work, think works very well is if you can come up with a leading indicator of retention, because you don't, you don't want to like delay. You don't want to be like, oh, you signed up this account and now I'm going to pay you a piece of it for the next two years. It's just like too long. They need to like have the pay right then. But it's like, if you can figure out what is it that you might see in the first month of a customer uh, life cycle, that if this happens, then they're going to probably be with you forever. And if it doesn't happen, they're going to churn. In HubSpot, it was like that they use five or more features. In Dropbox, it's just they back up their device. In Slack, it's they send 2,000 team messages. It's something that's like really unique to your value prop. It's something you could observe right away. And what I like to do is I like to pay the salesperson half the commission on the contract signature and half the commission when that event occurs. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to turn the salesperson into a customer success rep. They let them continue on board. I'm just trying to to get the salesperson to set good expectations to have that event occur. So all of a sudden, like in the HubSpot example, where it's five or more features, these salespeople were just telling a dream story about how SEO is just going to magically happen and then go. But once we said you get half your pay on the signature and half your pay on if they set up five or more features, now the salesperson is setting up free trials with these accounts and getting them to set up their social media and their analytics and their email before they even sign the account. Yeah. Now you set the success criteria. So you're not only saying you have to sell this account, but here's what success looks like. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to pay you extra money right. until you get the custom to this success metric. Exactly. Right. And if you're going to and if you're going to transition to this, your your willingness to pay on a single account is more than your current one. Because currently your willingness to pay is factored in like a 10% churn rate. But like the churn rate on account that is signed and does this thing is really low. So the LTV is higher. So your overall comp on that on an account should be higher as you move to this. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Mark, you have seen more. Hey, John, just one thing where I'm seeing more and more, Mark, is where because companies are now understanding the importance from a sales perspective on customer success, mm-hmm. I'm seeing more and more companies taking like a high-ranking VP of sales yep, yep, and put them in the services position because no longer is it really, you know, in the, in the older days, customer support and success was almost like break fix. Now it's really 
having a mindset to, to your point of what does an ideal customer look like? Mm-hmm. How do I get them up this ramp to a success criteria and having salespeople that understand that and understand how they have to get sales to understand that also. So mm-hmm. it, it matches all the time. Exactly I love it. Point. Yeah. It's amazing. Emmanuel Scala at Toast, right? There's a lot, there's a long list of these folks. It's, it's wonderful. And all those like data-driven coaching, great hiring process that have been in sales for decades are so applicable to customer success. And yet, I don't think a lot of the teams are are operating at a very high level there. And moving a, a great process-oriented sales leader in helps to do that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. One of the other things on this topic that I've read, um, and I think you called, it was an article I read that you wrote, 10 Leadership Lessons from 10 Years at HubSpot. Mm. And Number 10, and I'm wondering if it's applicable to what we're talking about here and and if just give me some feedback on it. Minimize friction and customer handoffs by pushing the cross-functional alignment as close to the front line as possible. Let me just give you the hypothesis. So many times I see executives and ELT groups sit in a room and they're trying to understand what the problem is between sales and customer success Mm -hmm. or handoffs. Mm-hmm. And they miss the opportunity to go right to the source and mm-hmm. force the decision making mm-hmm. and the idea creation as close to the customer journey as possible. Am I on the right path there? Yeah, that what right. it's, it's so funny, Cap, because I was about to interrupt you guys and, and say there's an important answer to John's original question on taking over services. And this is this was a huge moment. Was you know, we'd grown up to the point where it's like now we had like 80 reps in this one room and 30 customer success managers in this other room. Yeah. And when a customer was signed, the rep went into the CRM and filled it out and hit submit. And it was assigned to some CSM and they didn't even know there was nothing. Yeah. There was no, there's no communication. And like, God forbid that account didn't show up to their onboarding call. The CSM didn't tell the rep. And then uh, three months later, the rep gets this claw back and like they run over to the CSM and like yell at them or whatever. So it's like, so then I just created these cross-functional pods. Like, cause, cause your point cap, it's like, yeah, the VP of sales and the VP of customer success are sitting in this room being like, how can we align this? It's like, dude, <laughs> sit them together. So I, I, I kind of blew up the rooms and I was like, okay, here's a desk, right here. Here's a set of desks. There's four salespeople and there's two customer success managers. And all the, all the accounts from these four salespeople are going to go to these two customer success managers. And then like, they're just sitting there. And when like, when the a customer doesn't like show up to the onboarding call, like the CSM just goes like, Hey, John, that customer didn't show up. And like, Oh shit, let me give them a call. Right. And then when, when it's the last day of the month and this kid's like trying to make his quota and he's got this account that doesn't quite hit the success factors, but the CSM sees them busting his hump and like feels for him. He's like, here's the, let me just get on the phone with them, talk to them. Let me see if I'm comfortable taking them on. And if we do, we'll take them on. That's the magic that can't happen at the executive level where these, these folks know each other. Right. And yes, there's complications on scale because there's, you have to, you have to map utilization. And what if this one rep blows it out? Well, fine. You can, you can break the rules here and there and give some accounts to some other CSMs that aren't, don't, aren't full. And then what if like the rep complains that the CSM sucks and that's causing churn? Yeah. You've got to work through those things. But I do think the, the, the risks that come with it 
are offset by the beauty that happens with with just pushing it to these really smart, empowered people and, and let them figure it out. Hey, Cap, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit off of sales now and talk a little bit about, you know, Mark, you started um, Stage 2 Capital. It's a very, I'd say, different type of value proposition from, uh, you know, your, your traditional VC firm. Can you tell the audience about, you know, how you co-founded it and sure. how you've positioned Stage 2 Capital? Yeah, I think it's like... Really interesting. If you watch Silicon Valley on HBO, like there's an inside joke that when people start to like have some success in tech, they become very spiritual and Buddhist, and that did happen to me. So it's like <laughs> after after HubSpot, I just went to I was recruited to Harvard, and I was just like became very I w- I just reflected on my life and like all the big things that happened to me weren't things that I actually proactively planned, and so I just had this mindset that I'm going to just do what I can to get to as many people asking me for help and just help the ecosystem and see what happens. And that's, I did not set out to be a professor and I did not set out to be a venture capitalist. These things kind of showed up on my plate. But what I do do is I look at these opportunities through a filter of maximum impact on the ecosystem. And clearly to be a professor at Harvard Business School and write these cases, that checked a very high box. And then when Jay Poe approached me, he was a young investor at Bessemer. And he said, you know, I... He's like, I'm trying to be a revenue venture capitalist. And I'm like, what is that? He's like, all my, you know, a lot of venture capitalists came up through banking and they're good investors, but like then they sit in the boardroom and give advice to the CEOs and they've never operated a business before. Right. And they don't really know much about sales. And it's all about sales in the early stage. He's like, I want to know something about sales. And so he'd been go- he'd been going to BDR school and learning about it. And I was actually quite impressed with his knowledge. And in fact, he had a role, he had an offer to be VP of sales at one of the best portfolio companies when we were talking. But he's like, you know, I I just like, can we just do a, a, a kind of a sales accelerator at Bessemer together? I'm like, yeah, sure. You seem really smart. Like, this will be great. So we did it for like three months. And he's like, this is a VC firm. He's like, we need to start the first firm that is running back by sales and marketing leaders. We need to go out and convince all the best sales and marketing and customer success leaders to be investors in our firm and then go invest in the next generation of founders and ventures and fix the boardroom discussion and make sure that like they're not making these kindergarten mistakes and failing. And we did that. And, and I was like, wow, that's a big idea. And like, here's my 10 buddies who, who <laughs> like, and, and John was one of them. And thank, thankfully, like, they got the snowball going. And now like four years later, we're on fun three. We have 400 of these CROs, CMOs, CCOs, RevOps. I mean, pick a, pick a public SaaS or software company. We probably have their two or three of their executives, which is amazing. It's, a, like, it's an amazing talent pool to pull from every day to evaluate and help deals. And we've got 300 million under management and the MIT endowment has come in and anchored us. And the two of you are our early supporters. So I thank you for that. And and um, you know, so that that gets me excited. It's like I never set out to be a venture capitalist. And I like you, John, you had been courted by some of the firms to come and join. Yeah. Um, it felt a little dirty to me. Um, but you know, to do it on my terms with this mission, um, you know, I again it, it very much checks my box of like how can I help the ecosystem. And what have you learned being on the investor side now and mm-hmm. really on the board side? Yeah. So now what have you learned? Because now when you go into these smaller companies, you have that experience. You're now looking at them. You see all the issues that they have, but you 
I mean, from my perspective, I had to learn there's a hundred issues here, but I got to pick mm-hmm. the top two or three yeah. that are going to help them move the ball the most. What, what are some of the things that you've seen? It's spot on. I mean, with every single one we do, we write a go-to-market assessment and that's actually the first paragraph. It's like, you know, it's very easy to get advice from all these different places. And people are typically going to give you advice on what they know. Like, so if you bring in a CMO that's good at like account-based marketing, they're going to tell you how bad your account-based marketing program is. <laughs> but that might not be your top thing. Right. So you really have to have this very broad and you actually have to be like quite multidisciplined because I'll invest in a PLG company that has completely self-serve and I'll invest in like an insured tech company that only sells to the top 50 insurance companies and the average deal size is a million dollars. Like these are very, so you have to like know where your limits are and bring in the right people around you to be, to appreciate context. And the first thing we say in the go-to-market assessment is these are the two or three things that matter. I would say the other big surprising thing, John, is as I look out and get to know peers in the venture capital community, there's folks who come up from typical investing and there's some folks that come up through typical operating and they both have strengths and weaknesses. One's not better than the other. I think the finance folks are extremely good investors. They do like a thousand hours of diligence and have the patience to do it. Hundreds of customer calls. They know the market cold. They see the whole competitive landscape that I don't think the operational investor peers have the patience for. Right. But the disadvantage of them is they've never run a business. So they don't have that instinct. And especially post-invest, like pre-investment, there's an instinct importance too to assess the person. And then post-investment, there's some there's some issues. Now the operating investor- when I see them being, sorry to interrupt, that they yeah. a lot of times they, they think things are very cookie cutter, you know, because from a finance it, perspective, things yeah. could be, but they say, hey, it worked at company ABC, you yep. should do it at DEF, but it's Spot a completely different on. company, different market, different value proposition, different everything. Such a pisser. They come They come in, they're like, okay, you need to go upstream, sign up for a triple, triple, double, double instead of a BDR team. Well, why? Because, oh, because I invested in Snowflake and that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, but dude, that was like a totally different context, right? Like, that causes so much failure. And and so, yeah, that's what they, they do. And I don't understand why finance investors are so involved in the operational advisement at the board level. I just don't understand that. Now, now operating investors, they have that intuition and I think they're good investors. The problem is, unlike their finance investor peers, they're more willing to look the other way on problems they can solve. And that's not our, that's not our job, mm. right? Like the operating investors are like, they see, a, they're like doing their diligence. They're like, oh, that's, a, you know, I love that. I love that. I love that. Here's two problems, but I know how to fix those. But they don't realize that they're not CEO of this business. Right. And so they're, they're more apt to, to invest in problems than their finance investors. And, I, and that at stage two, we bring the two together. We don't give one person 50 million bucks or whatever. We give a, a pod 50 million bucks. We give the finance investor with the go-to-market investor to kind of create that magic. Mm, hey, Mark, can you, uh, with the timing of where we're at right now, yeah. where you can't pick up the Wall Street Journal and I, you can't get an answer on what are the economic headwinds? How long are the economic headwinds going to last? Can you just give us like your perspective right now? Uh, what are you, how are you advising the firms that you're investing in? Mm-hmm. What, what do they need to be doing as it relates to, um, I'm thinking of like Game of Thrones. Dude, is winter coming or <laughs> is winter coming or not? Like what, what mm-hmm. advice are you giving uh, right sure. now? Right. So it's not my place to say is winter coming. I'm not like Larry Summers or like this best like economist. I read all the stuff, obviously. And 
from what I'm reading anecdotally, it seems like it is coming. And, and from what I know about economics, it seems like there's something coming, but no one knows when and how deep and how long. So we just have to prepare for it. That's our job. And there's all the rudimentary stuff that everyone reads about, which is like shore up capital. We like to see 20 to 30 months of runway um, in our companies. So uh, and a lot of times you have to like, you know, make, make, make some cuts, honestly, um, and, and make sure you're adjusting your hiring plan to, to make sure that you have that. And we've done that across, we've, we've kind of helped our companies get into really good shape there. Um, I think the, the other thing that you have to do is, um, you know, oftentimes, like if we just take Q2 right now and compare it to Q4, Q3 of last year, the, the priorities of your buyers are probably dramatically changed. And so the, the positioning and value prop that you learned last year and was working in Q3 and Q4 is probably not optimal for where your buyer's mindsets are today. And so you have to like quickly relearn it and figure that out. You know, that's, that's kind of a, a big thing for us. Um, but to be quite frank, like anecdotally, unlike the 2001 and 2008 crisis, which it seemed like it happened in four days, it was like pipelines were gone. Yeah, We're just not seeing that. I'm not seeing that in our portfolio right now, God forbid. And I'm actually not seeing it from my peers that I talk to our investors who are, you know, in some of their markets. Of course, that's not always the case. There are certain markets that are hurt more than others, but we're not seeing that like dramatic fallout right now. Is it coming? I don't know. Hey, Johnny Mac. Um, no, hold on. Uh, I want to do one more transition. You got it. I'm pressed for time, but this guy's, like I said, multi-talented. I know it, dude. All <laughs> these guys are stuff so awesome. <laughs> so, Mark, one more, one more, or yeah, one sure. more, like top, mm-hmm. quick topic. You know, so you teach. You're now a professor for the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. sales and marketing at at the uh, Harvard MBA School. Can what is? Can you just walk us through? I mean, which must be tough teaching some of the key fundamentals, you know, of sales and marketing to MBA students. Can you walk us through some of the things you try to get across? Yeah, it's a lot of fun because they're like, they're like Ferrari brains. You know what I mean? It's, it's so different than teaching sales to like the 21 or 22 year old graduates that we turn into BDRs. Um, you know, a lot of them actually don't even really want to go off and be quota carrying reps, but they, a lot of them are become founders, CEOs, general managers. And I, I really am inspired by their motivation to learn sales and appreciate how important it is. So that's a lot of fun. But they're like remarkably uh, elementary in their knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> like they just get in there on the first day. I'm like, what is sales? Cold call someone. And they're like, provocative presentations. You know, like... <laughs> And then I show them the awesome gone.io research and I show them like, okay, this is an analysis of, you know, 50 million sales calls. Okay. And it shows that like the top performers speak less than 50% of the time on the first call and the bottom performers speak 75%. So I'm like, Hey, provocative presentations. uh, So what's going on here? Like, Oh, the best salespeople talk the least on the first call. I'm like, okay, so what the hell is going on? What are they doing? Like, oh, they're asking questions. Okay, what are they asking questions about? I mean, that's the level we're at. And they're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right? And for it's just groundbreaking, right? But you know, for for folks who've been in the industry, but that that's the level we're dealing with. But we cover a lot of ground. We cover the whole sales playbook in module one. We cover all the sales management stuff in module two. We cover all the VPS sales stuff in module three. 
and, and they come out a project great. or something at the oh, end. tons of stuff they okay. do they do experiential assignments every two weeks so they they partner up with someone and we do discovery call role plays then demo role plays then complex sales role plays we have like um scripts that they're blindly reading so the other person doesn't know so they know how to play we have it recorded and gone and we have 60 sales coaches that help us to coach these folks so they go through a lot and do you try to take any of the products that they want to if it's the entrepreneurial program they must uh, want to be ceos almost all of them are founders yeah. yeah. so do you try to evaluate you know their product and their icp and you know, what's Definitely. Their messaging? Should I would be? say a third of my cases now are from former students. So it's a great breeding round. I've probably invested, I've invested in a couple. It's illegal for us to do it or against the rules there to do it while they're in school. But like after graduation, invest in a couple, we see some really good deal flow. I guess like my only beef with most MBAs is you see a lot more gluten-free pizza ideas than you do like um, vertical <laughs> SaaS businesses, you know? I think it's just because they're like, it's what they connect with. And I'm like, don't yeah. be afraid of like, in, you know, doing some research on the concrete industry. You'll, you'll see some gold in there. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't want another like apparel company or, you know, like, you know, uh, sugar-free like the soda or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what I think what we do, Johnny, is uh, Mark has done such a great job or the marketplace has done a great job with interviewing Mark. I saw a great video where you show that gong research. We'll go and we'll link some of those in the show notes because I think they're really worth the, the view and the listen for our viewers. Um, I think you do a great job of walking through like what you're teaching the entrepreneurial students. So We'll we'll link that. We'll put links into your we'll put links into your book as well. If you'll allow me, guys, can I do just a quick recap of the great yeah. conversation that we had mm -hmm. today? And Johnny, like every guest that we have, we could you know there's got to be a there's going to be a part two here. So um, has to uh, be great. <laughs> there's got to sure. be a part two. All right. So we talked about in the beginning, when you first started at HubSpot, you talked about the difference between early sellers versus sellers at scale. And I think that that was very insightful. There are sales skills uh, and sales attributes to look for uh, at different stages of a company as a company scales. You also talked about if you had to pick of the all the things you needed to do as a sales leader, you said that you had to be a plus job on hiring, um, even more than the onboarding, and you spent a third of your time recruiting and interviewing. I mean, we just can't emphasize that enough. Uh, if you're not good at that, if you don't dedicate yourself to be a student of the game of that, you are going to fail in the long run. Um, you also talked about being okay with career ADHD. And as the as you scale and as your career progresses, you are going to be utilizing different skill sets. The best sellers don't always make the best managers. This was your premise, and that's what all the data says. So you began this emerging leader concept. I'm going to call it an emerging leader concept. And you came up with ideas like making your quota for six months in a row, you go to leadership school, uh, then you hire a rep, you coach that rep for three months. John McMahon gave me some great advice when I asked him, why am I not getting promoted? He said, if you want the next job, act like you already have it. And you're actually giving Beautiful. people ideas to 
give them the ability to act like they already have the next job. I thought that was just outstanding. Everybody should have an emerging leaders kind of concept, which brought me into the next conversation was around engineering the sales profile. And I really think your dialogue on this is, is brilliant. Um, it is what makes sellers great in our environment, in our in our context? In the old days, we would say, you know, well, if they're good at Oracle, they're going to be a good at PTC. No, that has nothing to do with the two environments are vastly different. What makes them great in our environment? I love your concept about validating through the interview process with a role play self, find out how people self-assess, how do they take feedback and asking them, what are some, what's something you've done? What was something you like that you did well, and what's something you need improvement on? And then you're giving them something to improve upon and then interviewing that role play on the improvement. I think it's so powerful because I hear people talk about curiosity, intelligence, Intelligence, I'm okay with how we measure that. Uh, curiosity and, uh, and coachability, I think, are very, very nebulous out there when I talk to leaders that are trying to measure that. And you gave us a great way to do that. Love your idea on career pathing tiers. The human condition is built on progressing. And the, if you're not growing, you're dying. And it's a great retention strategy and more emphasis on the performance factors than on the time factors. I've also found out, I've asked people why they've left companies. And one of the big reasons why they've left companies, they couldn't see themselves in the future. And they didn't know why somebody got promoted versus somebody else. If you're hearing those things in your environment, it's very, very dangerous. I love your comment on root of retention issues is in sales. The root of retention issues at high percentage of the time is in sales. Uh, and then you said in God, we trust all else bring data to really validate that, to, to make sure. You talked about measuring the buyer's journey. We didn't talk about that a lot with you, but your whole concept and philosophy is always start outside in. Always start with the customer and their journey the products, the services, how we align, how we set up a sales process always aligns to that buyer's journey. Then the last big things we talked about was your role at um, stage two capital. And the real unique differentiator is creating pods of operational investors along with financial investors. And you called yourself or JPO called it the revenue venture capitalist, which is brilliant. And John and I have seen the benefits from that. We've talked a little bit about economic headwinds and just, you know, whether they're coming or not, it's really, really smart to have 20 to 30 months of runway capital, stay close to the priorities of your buyers. Again, an outside in mindset versus an inside out, regardless of what winter or what season is coming, that's always going to benefit you. We didn't get enough time to talk to you about what you're doing at Harvard and the entrepreneurial school. We could always come back and talk about that. Um, love the research that you showed on on the gong on first sales calls. And the bottom line is uh, the most elite sellers are really make it all about the customer first before they earn the right to make it about themselves, which means they're talking a lot less and asking more questions. And we'll try to pump the show notes with examples of that because it's such great content. Johnny, what did I miss? Well, there's so many golden <laughs> nuggets in there. This 
two things that I wanted to stress is that when Mark was in a startup early on as the sales VP or the CRO, and this is what I think a lot of people don't understand when you get involved in a raw startup is he did talk so much about how you're really a product development you know, mechanism to take the customers that you're talking to and feed that back into product development. And that's really what his job was, not only to try to get sales, but a lot of product development feedback. The um, second thing is on services. I like how he took the services teams, sales teams, put them together in pods, basically forced those discussions to happen. And also in the comp plan to set a success criterion by which he was going to pay reps on making sure that these customers were successful you know, that they were invested in the customer success. That's That was really powerful to me. So love that. Love it. Johnny, bring us home with the fun rapid fire questions. All right, Mark, a couple of rapid fire questions. You ready? Okay. <laughs> What's your ideal day off of work? With my boys. My boys are Kai and Zane are 15 and 14. Uh, so just playing basketball, going for a run, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Are they faster than you now? He is. He's doing a... I think he did the uh, four. No, he was. Yeah, I think he broke five on the mile this year. Five? Yeah. That's I think flying. he did 455 or something. That's yeah. flying. Yep. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yep. It's only going to get stronger. Mm. So, where do, where do they leave you in the dust? Right from the beginning, or do they? Ha, he toys with me. We'll go out. We'll we do like a four mile run every other day and about a mile in. He'll be like, okay, can I do an interval now, Dad? And he like sprints ahead. And I'm like, oh. he like sprints down and he sprints back and he like goes back to my pace. Uh, painful. painful. Yeah. What's your favorite meal? Tacos. Tacos. I love tacos. Uh, my brother and I love tacos. I, I love making tacos. My adjustment, my, my, my secret thing that a lot of people do is I put the sour cream on first and then they put the meat on. Uh. So it goes sour cream, meat, cheese to get the cheese melted, then the sauce. Then the lettuce. Then I use the tomatoes and the avocado to smush it in. Wow. A man never without a process. <laughs> Love it. Love yeah, it. I line it all up in the order so I can make four of them, John. <laughs> a cap. I just like put them all in the order. Sorry, and I just boom, boom, boom. Love it. Yeah. Soft shell or hard shell? Hard shell. I like the hard. Hard yeah. shell. All right. Yeah, I, I like that. Favorite movie. This is such a weird, corny one. Patch Adams, believe it or not. Robin love Williams. Movie, I, I love Robin Williams. And I just think he, I thought he was an amazing actor and comedian. And I went back and watched Patch Adams with my kids two years ago or last year. And I realized that that movie was a turning point for me to become a nonconformist. And nonconformity has done it's been such a great, happy philosophy for me. And I think Patch Adams was one of the turning points. So that's the reason it. I just think it's a fun great movie. One, yeah. yeah. Great one. How about the best concert you ever been to? So, yeah, I went to the Great Went and Fish for Fish. I wasn't like, I love music. I wasn't a huge go- concert goer, but like my friends would always go and I'd go. And the Fish one was one of those like two-day things. I remember I was like summering in Southern Maine and my boys were, my buddies were driving up from, Massachusetts. They picked me up in Maine and we drove seven more hours. Like I didn't know Maine was that big. We drove all the way up to the top at this like old army base. And there was like a hundred thousand fish fans. And we had like two days of, of, uh, of concert going. It was a lot of fun. 
How about your favorite? Do you have a favorite charity, Mark? You want to talk? I about? do. Build.org. So, so uh, all the proceeds from my book are donated to that. I'm proud to say that there's been over a hundred thousand dollars of donations. So, thank you all for the support there. Um, but Build.org is. Um, they essentially, um, they're in like 20 cities, I think, and they partner up with the three worst performing uh, schools in the city, high schools in the city. Um, and they basically take about 100 students and they teach them entrepreneurship, put them in a program at freshman year. It goes all four years. So how do you come up with ideas? They actually build pro- a product and sell it by the time they're a senior. And the whole goal of the program is to get them in through high school into college. And they're graduation rate for high school of those that go in the program is 99 percent and the matriculation rate into college is 85 percent which is like 2x the average for those high schools so i obviously you know again passion for entrepreneurship it's an awesome program build.org they they need mentors they need volunteers they need donors so check them out where are they based all over they're out of san francisco but they've got um you know offices in in these 20 different cities okay good Right, we'll put that in the show notes, build.org. You got it, brother. Well done. Hey, Mark, I'm going to let Johnny uh, take us home with the goodbyes. But, dude, uh, thank you for what you do for sales. Thank you for what you do for just educating the marketplace. Uh, it's I think your ideas are, are awesome and time-tested, and we really, really appreciate you being with us today, brother. Thanks, Cap. Appreciate it. You too. Mark, super grateful. Thanks. I'm very appreciative to have had you on. And Cap, I told you the guy was a super talent. No <laughs> we really could have gone on, you know, mm-hmm. for a couple hours with Mark. So I appreciate no John. I'm just repeating your words, John. Everyone asked me who made the biggest impact on your sales knowledge, and it was it was Mr. McMahon. The four hours a month we spent together for many years, I learned a ton, and probably don't credit you enough because it's just embedded in my brain. But I'm probably just repeating all the stuff you said. You're being too nice. Too <laughs> nice. All right, Mark, thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.